A study produced in 2019 revealed that 72% of cases for women, women had to wait longer than men to receive a proper diagnosis, considering the average duration time of weeks, not hours. So 72% of women will not receive the right diagnosis and will be dismissed. Studies also focused solely on men have shaped our unique understanding for things like heart disease, ADHD, aging, osteoporosis, pain management, stroke, cardiovascular disease. Women with identical symptoms to men are 30% less likely to be believed and referred to follow-up. So that also means that we don't get referred for specialists to have additional studies done to find out what the conditions are. In a systematic review. Welcome to the Menopause Mastery Podcast, a show for women just like you who are ready for more health, vitality, passion, living life with a purpose. I created this show because I knew that women just like me in this second season of life, the season of menopause, are really tapping into their deepest desires. And we're ready to harness our physical and mental health and explore what our true passions are and peel back the layers to uncover exactly what we want out of life. I'm your host, Betty Murray, part geek, part magician, and your new medical bestie with a dash of sass. I love taking the complex science and making it easier to integrate into daily life. So let's join the journey to make this season the best ever. Have you been feeling off? You know what? Your hormones might be out of whack. Take my quiz to discover your personalized hormone imbalance and get a free report with your results. Learn what's really going on with your hormones and start feeling like yourself again. Just visit the website quiz.hormoneshelp.com to take the hormone quiz now. Welcome back to Menopause Mastery. So today I want to go into evidence-based medicine. One of the biggest arguments conventional medicine makes against advancement in science and advancement in medicine, specifically around the idea of functional medicine, which is getting to the root cause by recognizing many disease states, particularly the ones we die from, which are diet and lifestyle related, have shared mechanisms. And at the end of the day, diet, lifestyle, exercise, nutritional supplementation, medications were necessary. However, we're going to go into what does their real data look like on medication and that has been used as a battering ram. The whole idea that we need double-blind, placebo-controlled trials on every single thing to show that it works has been used against this movement for a very long time. So what does that mean? So does that mean that every drug that we prescribe to women has gone through evidence-based medicine requirements, i.e. placebo-controlled, double-blind, female-only, or female-centric studies? Well, let me get it to you and get it to you straight. The sex bias in studies and the lack of studies on females in particular, and I'm talking about women who are biologically female, have sailed women. And I'm going to go into the details today so you really understand this. So I'm going to start first with a little story of a client of mine, Sarah. I saw Sarah acting as incident, but her experience was very harrowing. So Sarah had been feeling under the weather and her symptoms were very vague a random sense of doom, sort of this like not depressed, but this underlying sense of doom, a serious amount of fatigue, a little bit of nausea, chronic headaches, waning libido, mood swings. But the fatigue and that sense of doom was really her biggest thing. And she ended up in her doctor's office 
And he brushed away her complaint saying it's normal for a woman her age. So you can just guess, you know, she was a perimenopausal woman and suggested that she go home and work on her stress and maybe try some yoga. So first off, her dismissive experience highlights a deeply rooted centuries-long issue in medicine, which is a gender bias against women, even perpetuated by female doctors. So I'm not saying that this doesn't happen with female doctors. It is a travesty because women make up more than 50% of the population, but the female body obviously has historically been ignored. And so the interesting thing with Sarah's story is Sarah continued to feel poorly and ended up in the ER one day. The narcia had gotten worse. The fatigue had gotten worse. The sense of foreboding had gotten worse. She was feeling this kind of uncomfortable fluttering in her chest. And what would be going on is Sarah was having a heart attack. And the reality is this evening is less. If you the mess because her symptoms are not the classic documented symptoms of men, which is shooting pain down the left arm and pain up in her jaw, crushing chest pain. She had a sense of foreboding and nausea, fatigue, and a general sense of unwellness, which, of course, women deal with every day. So in one way, yes, we, it's hard for us to pinpoint a potential deadly experience and hard for physicians, but physicians are notoriously quick to dismiss that as just something as part of getting older. And the reality is women die from heart attack, the first one, more frequently than men per capita, and strokes. Our strokes are more fatal. And a lot of this is probably the origin of this sort of bias. So this sexual bias, and I'm speaking specifically of sexual bias in the fact being biologically woman from a female from birth. This starts all the way back with Aristotle. Aristotle categorized women as mutilated, and I'm air quoting if you're watching me on video, males. So we were distinguished by our anatomical differences only, and then being basically labeled as flawed and or insufficient. But we were acknowledged for having biological and social significant organs, right? The uterus. So we were defined completely by this organ. And this organ defined our role and our role to bear children. And such beliefs really the myths portraying women as irrational, unstable, moody, hysterical, all became the norm. And it was basically viewing women as a biological reproduction machine and it became deeply embedded in the medical culture. And to be honest, the idea of a hysterectomy came from the idea of the wandering womb. And again, you know, doing air quotes if you're watching me on screen, the wandering womb is what causes hysteria in women. And that if you remove that organ, that would make her docile. So the understanding of female biology was predominantly focused on our reproductive function completely. And to this day in medical school, we the focus on women's health is specifically around reproductive activity. And this is part of what a vet to be a woman, but as a result, women's health issues have frequently been attributed to the mysteries and complexities associated with our reproductive system. And these were justified restriction on women accessing medical knowledge historically, confining women's health to pregnancy and reproduction. And then when we discovered hormones such as estrogen and progesterone, it was used to cement further ideas around women's volatile and uncontrollable biologies. So in the early 20th century, the policy called the Plutchium Report did more to damage medical innovation than probably any other thing that I know of. So the Plutchium Report was put out in the 20th century, and its goal was, through financial means and also heavy-handedness, 
to create a standardized medical education. And it was really heavily leveraged favoritism towards pharmaceutical and surgical interventions. There was a lot of financial interest squashing basically other schools of thought. And this is what became Western medicine or conventional medicine. So conventional medicine isn't that old because if you look at historical societies like the Chinese and India and Ayurvedic medicine, we have medicines that go back tens of thousands of years or at least 5,000 years documented. And then if you look at all other indigenous societies, there were definitely medical interventions, but they included things like natural herbs and other interventions to keep us alive. But so basically it discounted all of these, what's seen as quackery, and it damaged the chiropractic in schools of thought, the homeopathic medical schools, which actually numbered in the same number as conventional medical schools. And also at this time, nearly eliminated female physicians and barred women and people of color from medical school from these new hospitals. So prior to this, there was a large population of women in the medical systems and people of color. And the Flexner Report did a great job of basically keeping everybody white males out of the medical system. You know, participation in medicine and research became an all-white male pursuit. So the damage was done. Practicing medicine reflected white male bodies and the health of white males within a century. So modern policies continued to constrain women. And it wasn't until 1993 females were systematically added into drug trials. Right. So prior to 93, women were completely left out of drug files because they might have to potentially bear children at one time. And then there was an unacknowledged difference in how we metabolize drugs and other things because of hormone changes. But we were basically left out and we were basically treated as if we were walking wombs is basically what it was. But the gender bias really lingers on, and women focus studies centering on reproductive activities were really the only thing that women was included in. And women continued to be pigeonholed as reproductive bodies and just moving through that process. So let's talk about where that really shows up. So if we look at studies, doctors failed to adequately recognize and validate women's symptoms, right? We just talked about that with Sarah Sorty. And that also includes the fact that we are, have a failure to reach an accurate diagnosis. A study produced in 2019 revealed that 72% of cases for women, women had to wait longer than men to receive a proper diagnosis, considering the average duration time of weeks, not hours. So 72% of women will not receive the right diagnosis and will be dismissed. Studies also focused solely on men have shaped our unique understanding for things like heart disease, ADHD, aging, osteoporosis, pain management, stroke, cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's. Women with identical symptoms to men are 30% less likely to be believed and referred to follow-up. So that also means that we don't get referred for specialists to have additional studies done to find out what the conditions are. In a systematic review... In a systematic review, women were 43 to 69% more likely to have an adverse event to drug recorded by men. And this rose specifically across all drug classes. So this didn't matter which drug class, whether they were antidepressants, pain management, satin-lowering disease. And when they looked at an analysis of 668 drugs, 46% reported a significant sex difference in adverse reaction and factors of such as polypharmacy, right, where we are stacking drugs on top of them, 
psychological and physiological differences and particularly differences in metabolic enzyme have contributed particularly to these disparities. So you, if you've listened to my podcast, you know that we have a significant impact of our hormones at the liver and how they operate and how they get metabolized. Those are the same metabolic processes and pathways that meditations go through. So we also know that women with identical symptoms are going to have inadequate pain treatment and just inadequate treatment. So let's look at some of the just intimate studies so we can really cover this. Hey there, are you over 40 and finding that a good night's sleep feels like a distant dream? Have no fear, I have cracked the code. I am offering a free ebook, A Woman's Guide to Kick-Ass Sleep, with insights tailored just for you. So if you're ready to dive into the secrets of sound sleep after 40 and wake up refreshed, zip over to sleep.hormoneshelp.com and snag that ebook. Your dreamy sleep awaits. So for secondary prevention of coronary disease, we're going to talk about statin, right? So if we look at secondary prevention of coronary disease and also primary prevention of heart disease, statins have shown to reduce coronary events in men, but not in women, right? So the idea that you're going to take a preventative statin to prevent a cardiovascular event has never been shown in women with a statin drug. When we look at secondary prevention of coronary disease, statin do seem to reduce events for women, but they still do not lower all-cause mortality. So here we go. So it makes your cholesterol go down, but it doesn't keep you from dying. And it is unclear if ischemic stroke in women is actually either remotely impacted by the use of statin, though they seem to increase the risk of a hemorrhagic stroke in women. So what does that mean? So that means the use of traditional statin-lowering drugs show no improvement in women in preventing heart disease, cardiovascular death, or stroke. And it actually may increase your risk for a hemorrhagic stroke. And in secondary prevention, it might lower your cholesterol, but it's not going to change your mortality, meaning you will probably die at the same rate as if you didn't take it. When we look at some observational data, some data link statin use to lowering Alzheimer's prevention in women, but prospective data does not show improved cognition or Alzheimer's pathology. We don't know about that in other forms of dementia, like vascular dementia. So even though statins may lower disease prevalence, it doesn't seem to improve cognition in anybody that might be showing cognitive decline. And statins actually pose a higher risk for diabetes in women compared to men. Basically, statin drugs, because of the enzymatic activity, increase the likelihood of insulin resistance in all population. And then in women, it actually increases your risk of diabetes over your lifetime. So if you compound all those together, you say, okay, why would you be prescribing statins as primary prevention in women? It does not make sense. The evidence do not support that. The data do not support that. They also know that there's some concerning signals of increased breast cancer risk in statin trials. Though observational studies truly have been mixed and data is limited for some other cancers. So what we don't know is the mild poisoning of the mitochondrial function that is created by a statin drug. Does that have an increased risk for cancers, particularly breast cancer? It seems like the data do support that. And there's obviously a need for a lot more research. 
Statins also induce in some people muscle toxicity. Myopathy is the technical term for that, where the muscle tissue gets damaged because of the reduction of mitochondrial function. And this appears to be more common in women than men. And then there's effects on bone health. Right now, the data are equivocal. There is no fresh reduction seen in large women health studies when somebody is on a statin and also diagnosed with osteoporosis. So it doesn't support using statins in osteoporotic women. So this systematic review really highlights a huge amount of gaps in the efficacy and safety of commonly prescribed medication. And especially when people say, oh, we want to watch and show evidence. Well, if you have evidence, you need to prescribe according to the evidence. And the evidence, in my opinion, looking at this, do not support the use of statins in women, particularly as primary prevention. And it really calls into question the idea that we are calling evidence when they, women were systematically excluded from study. Now, if we look at, if we look at 2024, right? So if we look at all the drugs, in 2024, there's only one FDA-approved drug, Champion, that has a female or sex-specific dose starting at 5 milligrams to 6.2 milligrams in women, and then men at 10 milligrams to 12.5 milligrams. Due to the dangerously high potential of overdosing Ambien in women because of slowed metabolic clearance at the liver, right? Remember, I said the liver actually has enzymes that clear hormones and other things, toxins, phthalates, plasticizers, herbicides, pesticides, and oh, guess what? Your actual medication, which means it changes the efficacy of that dose, the toxicity level, and how your body metabolizes. So the reality is we have hundreds and hundreds of drugs that we prescribe. We have, at least last time I checked, over 185, it's probably in the 200 now, drugs that we know genetically, depending on your genetic mutation, have a potential genetic interaction that may make that drug toxic to you. And then if you add the fact that you're a woman, they've not been studied. So when we look at the milestones, things like the 1993 NIH Revitalization Act mandated the inclusion of women in clinical trials. Yet in 2020, research focused on women's health only sufficed 11% of research. And this is an important step, but it's got a long way to go. And actually in October 2023 was the first time we actually earmarked studies for women in the U.S. So here's the reality. Women need studies specifically on drug and drug metabolism to be able to give specific dosing and or whether that drug actually has efficacy if the evidence cannot support it. We have a lot greater risk of all-cause mortality to cardiovascular event. And let's face that one out of two people usually die of some sort of cardiovascular event because women are less likely to be acknowledged for those kind of illnesses because it looks like a lot of other symptoms. So, for instance, women with heart failure get fewer transplants and are less likely to be waitlisted than men today, though transplant outcomes are getting more effective in women, right? So heart transplant works better in women, but yet we don't get them as much because women are left out. And it wasn't until 2016 that the American Heart Association recognized sex difference in presenting symptoms. So that's why when you go to the hospital, you may have people that have no earthly idea What's going on with you may be very dismissive of your symptoms. If you look at medical science and medical school curriculums, there's a huge challenge here. 
anatomy textbook, illustrations in medical textbooks focus disproportionately on males today and still today. And we train medical students using biased materials that influence and reinforce women as the reproductive body and men as the standard. So outdated teaching materials are a problem, and it keeps this myth and hysterical, irrational women versus stoic, sensible men going. So while medicine slowly turns the tide, including women in research, addressing need bias could profoundly shape better diagnosis and treatment for women. So like I said, the small fissures of change are forming. Researchers are starting to analyze results by biological spec. Advocates for re representative samples and trials are being heard. And we are starting to explore nuances for diseases in women like heart attack stroke. And doctors actually are now starting to gain awareness of how varied the expression of diseases in women can impact their health. And I would say this is nowhere more clear than in the functional medicine movement, because very core to the functional medicine movement is you have a person in front of you that is a patient or a client, and that person is an N of one. And so therefore, you look at them as an N of one, not a collective bias based on probably literature you read years ago. So the reality is the centuries of gender myths, stereotypes continue to stain our medical foundation. And progress really requires dismantling this deep-rooted belief among practitioners, medical schools, policymakers, pharmacy companies, medical device makers, and the people that drive the economic engine of medicine. And we have to apply pressure to promote women's interests and push for representative research and educate providers on inhibiting these biases. Patients must now also feel empowered to receive second opinion. I will say after 20 years of running a clinic with medical and healthcare providers of many different skill sets, one of the things that we do well is provide second opinions and a quarterback environment. What do I mean by quarterback? What I mean is the quarterback helps control the game. So in most situations, and I have witnessed this helping my mom over the last nine months with her heart attack and stroke, and also even my husband, you know, crush factor on his tibia. What's happening in Western medicine, conventional medicine, and I'm going to air quote real medicine, is the patient is always left as the quarterback. I have watched my husband go from an orthopedic surgeon to a infectious disease doctor to a wound care clinic where all of the providers there asked me to communicate to the other providers. The reality is we were supposed to create electronic medical records. We were supposed to create an environment and sharing of data. And somebody damn well better be playing in a quarterback and it shouldn't be the patient. But the reality is 100% of the time that's usually the case unless you're working with a functional person or a concierge staff. Because Western medicine is just pushing a prescription to another specialist or a medication. So the reality is most people, if they are in their 50s and above, and especially 60s, 70s, and 80s, they're going to have multiple specialists. And if you're a woman, you will probably be dismissed and be sent to multiple specialists that are ignoring what you have going on and nobody's helping you understand it. So the real thing is we have to apply pressure and we have to start demanding better care because it's not getting better, it's actually getting worse. And the reality is if we look at our patients, the people that go to apathetic doctor responses, we can absolutely help people, number one, reduce their risk for disease, 
Number two, intervene before something catastrophic happens, like a heart attack or stroke, because we actually did a riddle D for diet. And we might be able to help reverse the tide of chronic disease that is actually what's killing humans. We don't die of cholera. We don't die on the battlefield, although we do have lots and lots of individuals out there fighting for freedom and fighting for the defense of their country to die every day. But let's say that you and I are not dying from those things. We are dying from what we eat, what we drink, what we think, what we come in contact with, and a threat. And the reality is medicine has failed to deliver on all fronts and particularly failed to deliver equal treatment along gender or sexual line based on biology. And we have to forge meaningful change. And so we have a role, I have a role, to help bring this to everybody's attention and try and force for change, but you have a role also as a listener. You have a role to fight back and demand better care because ultimately you're paying for it. You're paying for it in insurance premiums, you're paying for it out of your pocket, and you're paying for it with your health. So thank you so much for listening to Menopause Mastery. If you found this to be a great episode, A, number one, I'd love you to do a couple things for me. Make sure you hit the subscribe button so you can make sure you don't miss any more episodes. Share it with a friend. And please, give me a five-star review. It really does help get more listeners. And that allows me to do many more great things with this show. So I thank you for listening to Menopause Mastery. I'll be back with you next week. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Menopause Mastery Podcast. You are why I'm here, and I am so very grateful. Hit subscribe so you don't miss any wisdom on creating the most exceptional life on our terms. If this episode has helped you in any way, please share it with a friend to spread the love and together we rise. You can follow me on social media at Betty Murray PhD and you can reach me online at bettymurray.com. 